Well, I recently read a brief biography of a man named Robert Annan. Robert Annan is referred to as the Christian hero. That's quite a title, isn't it? The Christian hero by the people of Dundee, Scotland. Scott Dundee is a coastal town, not unlike Portland, Maine. Born in 1834, Robert Annan lived a life of recklessness. He was fearless and fond of daring things. And from a young age, he would plunge himself into the sea any time of year. So even the polar plunge would have been great for him. And he quickly became a very powerful swimmer. And despite an otherwise, quite frankly, debauched life, he did turn his skill of swimming towards noble use to save lives. That's the hero part of him being a Christian hero. The Christian part took longer. He worked several hard jobs, uh, but preferred drinking, swearing, and fighting, which just landed him in jail. And so out of jail, he tried the army. And then after the army, he tried the navy. His his story is, is really profound. It's amazing. But through it all, he stuck to his sinful folly. But throughout all of this time, throughout all of this early part of his life, Christian friends and acquaintances would call Robert to believe in the gospel, and he would reject, and he would reject, and he would reject. And even though he would abandon them, they continued to pray for him, even after they had gone out of his life. Robert returned home to Dundee after traveling with the military and and suddenly found himself miserable. And confronted with his misery, he decided that he would take the advice of those Christian friends in the past and try to live a moral life. In that way, he would find peace. He'd straighten up and fly right. But soon he discovered he was no match for Satan. Because that's who controlled his life. So he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. And again, he heard the the gospel from local ministers in Dundee, and he wrestled in prayer with God, and he wrestled with himself and his behavior for weeks, even months. Then he read these words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And his biographer, who is a pastor who knew Robert Annan, writes, There. There he cast anchor, and although in after years he encountered many a storm, no blast was ever able to drive him from his moorings. He was safe on the rock. The long and short of it is that having come to Christ, Robert Annan gave all of himself tirelessly to seeking lost souls and to rescue them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the upshot of his story and the upshot of his biography. He would work all day long as a stonemason. You're starting to get a picture of this very stout, strong man. But he spent his evenings, after a full day at work, preaching in the streets. And he spent all of his, after, all of his weekends preaching in the streets, or in homes, or where anybody would listen to him. Often he would stay up all night after working all day in secret prayer, pleading at the throne of grace for lost sinners. On his way to work early in the morning to to be a stonemason, early each day, he would write scripture verses on the sidewalk in chalk 
so that the other people, as they would walk to work that day and walk to school, would read them. Robert Annan was a poor and uneducated man, but he was a Christian hero because he loved Christ and he loved lost souls and he prayed and prayed and proclaimed and proclaimed the gospel to the lost. He wasn't on a church staff. He wasn't in a ministry. He he was just a man who lived his life this way for seven years, praying and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. One day while working at the docks in Dundee, his biographer writes, and I'm reading now, about 12 o'clock, a boy, 11 years old, fell into the water. And Robert Annan, hearing the cry, plunged in to save him. Having reached the spot where the boy was struggling for life, he laid hold on him, and bidding him, hang on by my neck, he made way for shore. But the current proved too strong for even the strong swimmer, and two boats put off to his assistance. The child was saved, but the man of God went down. He might have saved himself by letting the boy go, but he did not do so. The self-sacrificing and Christ-like man would save another, even if he himself perished. Biographies like Robert Annan's offer living proof of God's grace to transform sinners into gospel proclaimers for the sake of other sinners. And Romans 10, our text this morning, is the word of God to help revive our proclaiming by reviving our compassion for the lost, our confidence in the gospel, and our zeal to pray and to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Read along with me as you would, if you would. I'm going to read our sermon text this morning, Romans chapter 10, it's verses 1 through 17. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of all, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, our purpose this morning is to ask God to revive us in our proclaiming of the gospel, and it begins, I think, with where Paul begins, which is reviving our compassion for the lost. The them, in verse 1, to Paul, is the Jewish people. In verse in chapter 9, just a few verses back, verses 2 to 4, he says of them, the Jewish people, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That sounds pretty compassionate. Paul is feeling great compassion for the lost. And here he's, he reveals his desires, desire for the Jewish people to be saved. Now, if we were to stick with just Paul's line of concern here, who are the lost people that you might feel compassion for? Who are the lost people that you might feel compassion for? Paul was connected to the Jewish people in various ways, and you are connected to people as well. They were first his kinsmen. So how about your kinsmen? Do you have a compassion for your kinsmen, your family, to be saved? Your mom and your dad, your kids, aunts, uncles, grandfathers. Do you have a compassion for your blood relatives to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Jewish people were Paul's ethnic heritage, descendants of Abraham, if you would. Do you have an ethnic heritage, an ethnic people group that you want to see saved? Some in our congregation weren't born in America. They came from other places. Do you, have, do you have a people group that you're interested in being saved? Many of us have been on mission trips in other places. Have you been to a place where you've participated in ministering to another people group and you desire to see them saved? You desire to see the gospel go out to them. The Jewish people were also God's chosen people. We read that under the Old Covenant. They were God's old covenant people, and they represented Paul's religious heritage, and ours as well, to some extent, in a various way. Many of you belonged to Christian denominations that have since forsaken Christ. Many of you grew up in the Roman Catholic homes. Do you desire for people from the same religious background as yours to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If they're in churches that do not preach the gospel that saves. Do you have that desire? Do you have that compassion for people? Paul would have considered the Israelites his fellow countrymen. So here he looks at them in a different light. They're the nation of Israel. Do you experience an anguish in your heart for lost people in your nation, in America? Are you concerned about lost people in the state of Maine? Here in South Portland or Scarborough or anywhere in the greater Portland area? These are people that we could have compassion for. Here's Paul, Christ's apostle to the Gentiles, who longs for and labors for the Gentiles to be saved. And at the same time, deep in his heart, he aches for the Jewish people to be saved. 
as well. And so he's actively praying to God to save them. When I read this, I know that I need God to revive my heart's desire to see lost people saved. And I'm kind of thinking you do too. I need my calm, comfortable prayers for lost people that I know to be revived into real prayers for the lost people to be saved. I need to trade in my weak, non-expectant prayers for real, desperate prayers for real, desperately lost sinners to be saved. That's the Holy Spirit revival we need in our hearts, desires, and our prayers to God to save the lost, even those right here among us this morning. And here's why the lost need our desperate prayers. Let me read again verses 2 to 4. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, Paul's talking about them, the Jewish people, and he says that they have a zeal for God, but their zeal is misplaced. Their zeal is not according to the true knowledge of God's righteousness. And there are two things here that will help us to understand what Paul's saying. First, Paul's not talking about the Jewish people in general or about historical Jewish people like when we read the Old Covenant, when we read the Old Testament Scriptures. He's talking about the Jews to whom he has preached the gospel who still remain ignorant of the righteousness of God that is found in Christ. I mean, Paul's on mission here, and he's writing to the church that's on mission here, and he's talking very experientially about those people. So this isn't theory. This is real people to whom he's proclaimed the real gospel who have really rejected the righteousness that comes through Christ. And so this is the second thing. Paul is contrasting two ways to pursue righteousness. One is, is by your works. You can try to keep the law and in that way prove yourself to be righteous before God. And the other is by faith in Christ who is actually the law keeper and who is actually the righteousness of God. So in verse 3, Paul reveals their ignorance. Even after hearing Paul's gospel, their zeal is actually an attempt to establish their own righteousness by their works. They're focused on achieving rather than believing, you might say. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. They did not submit to Jesus Christ by faith. And so they have not experienced salvation. Which is what believers do, according to Paul in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Which is a little tricky grammatically. It's just a little tricky grammatically when we read that. We might be tempted, again, to read at kind of a high theological, theoretical level, as in, oh, Jesus is the end or the fulfillment of the law. And that wouldn't be a bad guess, but it would be not what Paul's saying here. It's true, but what Paul is saying is still down at the experiential level. The experience of believers, 
is that when we come to faith in Christ, we stop using our works of the law to attain righteousness. We stop doing that. We could read verse 4 this way. Christ is the end of using the law to establish one's own righteousness for those who believe. That would be understanding the gist of what Paul's saying. Which is exactly what's different about you and me now. Isn't it? We who have saving faith. And to be clear, salvation has always been by faith. Under the old covenant and under the new covenant. And God's people have always been expected to follow the law under the old covenant and the new covenant. Not to earn salvation but to live out our salvation. You know, I think that we can, we can take what Paul's telling us here, and I think we can characterize all sinners as legalists. All sinners are legalists. What Paul sees in the Jews he has shared the gospel with, yet who go on trying to attain their own righteousness, we see in all sinners. Every lost person thinks What they think and say and do is right and justified, right? Sure, we all did. When confronted morally, they hold up their self-righteousness for inspection. Look at my self-righteousness. Look, look at my works. But God sees nothing but filthy rags. Your righteous works actually indict you as being unrighteous. They justify themselves by their righteous behavior, but God condemns it. Doing what is right in one's own eyes is the nature of lostness, right? And everyone did what they believed was right in their own eyes. It's the nature of lostness. Everybody thinks they're right. Everybody thinks they're justified. Believe it or not, we need to be revived. We need a revived clarity with which to see sin and the effects of sin in the lives of lost sinners. We need that. We need greater clarity in our understanding of sin and the effects of sin in this world. In the Gospels, Jesus clearly saw sin and the effects of sin in people's lives. And he had compassion on them, didn't he? That word compassion brings together two different ideas. The first is anger. Did you know that? That the root of compassion is anger? Jesus was angered by the terrible effects of sin in people's lives. Evil, sickness, death. That's part one of Jesus' compassion. Part two was remedy. Remedy. Rather than just being angry, Jesus acted to remedy sin and its effects. Didn't he? Think about the stories in the gospel. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And he would eventually himself go on to atone for sin on the cross. We need God's grace to rightly see the sinners around us and clearly see the effects of their sin. Not so we can condemn them, rather that we would see their desperate need, and that God would revive our compassion for the lost. 
that our heart's desire would be first for their salvation and that we would pray, begging God desperately on their behalf of their ignorant souls, that they would give them, that God would give them the righteousness of Christ that comes only by faith. Robert Annan had this compassion. When his wife expressed a fear that he would one day lose his life in saving others, Robert Annan replied, Dear Jeannie, could I look on a fellow creature perishing and not endeavor to save him? May God revive our compassion for lost souls and our confidence in the gospel. Pick up in verse 5. Let me reread these verses so that we can, we can tackle them. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, But, big contrast, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So just as we read through this, you see quotations of the Old Testament, and then you see in parentheses his commentary, Paul's commentary. Here's what this means. Here's what this Old Testament thing means to us. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul appeals to Moses' writings to explain the right use of the law. In Leviticus 18, where God says, don't live by the rules of pagan nations, but live by my rules, the righteous life comes by keeping God's commandments. It does. Those commandments are the righteous life. But the commandments were never the means to salvation. Because no man can keep them. Genesis 15, when Abraham, remember, believed the Lord's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness clearly shows that faith was always the basis for the relationship with God. Always. Old Covenant, New Covenant, whole Bible, always. Cross-reference Hebrews chapter 11 for a little help. And without a relationship with God, there is only judgment under the law. You see, it's not just that we need to understand sin, but that we must be absolutely clear that God's judgment already rests on the sinner. Without a restored relationship with God, sinners will be rightly condemned to eternal punishment in hell. We have to know in our hearts unequivocally that this is the worst of all possible outcomes for any person. You and I must believe that what we believe, that is, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God upon our sin. He has saved us from the eternity in hell that we deserve and yet will befall our family and friends if they do not believe. For the sake of the lost, we need a revived doctrine of hell. We have to know what is true. That when they die, they will not experience a peaceful separation from God to go about living their own way. 
No, they will experience the just, burning, eternal punishment of holy God upon their hatred of Him and rejection of His Son. We need the seriousness of the inescapable, unavoidable judgment of God on sin in order to have the matching depth of compassion in our hearts. If we don't think they're really drowning, we won't plunge in to save them. We must believe and be confident of both. It's the truth of the word of God. It's why, it's why Jesus tells us to pray even for our enemies, and we're willing to do that, because there's no enemy we could possibly wish hell upon. It's too terrible to think of. And yet, when we were enemies of God, that is what Jesus suffered for us in our place. The righteousness of God comes by faith in Christ's works. Throughout this section, throughout this whole section, Paul is quoting the Old Testament and then commenting on it. We don't have time to go into those passages in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, but I'll just summarize Paul's main point through his commentary that he makes, which is this. First, he says that the righteousness that comes by faith comes from the finished work of Christ. His death burial and resurrection, his sin-atoning death, his life-giving resurrection. He says, you could not bring Christ down to become a sacrifice for you, is what he says in essence. That would be the supernatural work you would have to complete. You would have to reach up and bring Christ down to become the Savior, and, and you could not raise Christ from the dead. You can't do these works, but what you could not do, Christ has done for you. He willingly came down. He willingly gave his life on the cross. He willingly went to the grave. He took his life up again and ascended to the Father. You see, salvation is not about doing, but believing. Then he says, you must believe the gospel word by faith. You must believe the gospel word by faith. You must believe this in your heart. That's what he's hammering on there. And then you must confess that Jesus is who saved you by his death, burial, and resurrection. And you do that with your mouth. Not by anything that you've done. All of what Christ has done. And if you believe in him, you will not be put to shame under the judgment of God for trusting foolishly in your self-righteousness, which always falls short of the required standard of Christ's righteousness, which is necessary for salvation. You won't suffer that shame. So brothers and sisters, where is your confidence in your salvation? Where is your confidence in your salvation? Is it in your righteous works? Good looking group, got dressed up early on a Sunday morning when all your neighbors were sleeping in, drove to church. You've sung, you've prayed, you've greeted one another. Is it by your righteous works? Or is it in Christ? His death, burial, and resurrection in your place. Is it by faith alone, in Christ alone? To be revived gospel proclaimers, we have to be clear on the gospel. The word of faith that Paul here is proclaiming. Is that the gospel that is fixed in your hearts? 
Is this the gospel that has saved you from God's just wrath upon your sins and changed your final destination from eternity in hell to eternal peace with God in his kingdom forever? Is it by this gospel that you know God and love his son? For us to be revived in our gospel proclaiming, we need complete and unshakable confidence in this gospel. And here's the assurance that that's right. In verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, now Paul has broadened the mission field for us, hasn't he? which we assumed he would do all along. He possesses all riches, and he bestows all his riches, every spiritual gift, on all who call on him, beginning with salvation. Do you know the single most important thing that makes a salesperson successful? Well, I threw you for a little curve there, didn't I? Going back to my undergraduate studies, Do you know what the single most important thing that makes a salesman successful is? Believing in his product. Believing in his product. If you have the very best product on the market, you will go out and you will bust all prior sales records because you have confidence in what you're selling. You can tell the truth about it. You don't have to lie about it. You don't have to coerce people. And do you know what every customer wants to go along with the very best product that they could possibly buy? A guarantee. I want a 100% money-back guarantee. Brothers and sisters, we're not salespeople. We're ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're truth proclaimers. We have the good news that saves people from their sins and brings them eternal life, and it's guaranteed. All who call on the name of the Lord, that means all who come to Jesus in genuine repentance and true faith, will be saved. Do you believe that? If you do, it's because you know it's true. You know in your own heart it's true. Robert Annan wrote a letter to a Christian friend to encourage him. And to do so, he went straight after his confidence in the gospel. Just as Paul's doing here. Listen to what he wrote. Robert Annan writes to his friend, The Lord has blessed me with faith to grasp the promise. He is my dearest friend, my best beloved. Oh, the blessed Jesus. He has accepted me. And I have given myself all and whole to be at his service. May the Lord humble me and lift himself up. I wish him to be glorified and myself cast down out of sight. Self keeps many a Christian from enjoying Christ as he ought to do. Cursed self. It keeps the Savior's face from shining on the soul. Dear friend, let Jesus be all. Let nothing be in his way. No idols, no stumbling block. Let Jesus have a clear course into your heart. 
The nearer a man lives to God's dear Son, the comelier he is in the eyes of God and angels and godly men, but the more unlovely to a wicked world. Dear friend, build your rest, build your nest on the rock of the ages. Fast by the altar and the throne of God. Let Christ be your only desire. Care not but for him. Nothing else will satisfy the soul. Oh, what a portion he is. The fullness of the Godhead is ours. A glorious God is ours. The Savior is ours. The Holy Spirit is ours. All things are ours. Away every idol. I kind of wish I'd written that. After instilling this great confidence in the gospel, Robert Annan goes on to encourage his friend to speak faithfully and to remember the doom of the slothful servant which fits our context here this morning. I mean, oh Lord, revive us. Revive our confidence in Christ and his gospel. Why? So that we would not be slothful, but speak faithfully to proclaim it. Look at the last couple of verses, beginning in verse 14. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The they here now is not just the Jews, but it's all lost people, Jew and Gentile. And Paul lays out the steps necessary for people to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But in reverse order. Did you notice? They're in reverse order. Which emphasizes really the need of these lost people. The need that lost people have for gospel proclaimers. Because they must hear the gospel in order to believe the gospel and call on the name of Christ to be saved. And so we must proclaim the gospel. The church is the source of gospel proclaimers. We go out and we proclaim the gospel to sinners so they can hear and believe and be saved. That's why the church has beautiful feet, Paul says. Because they're the feet that carry the gospel to the lost. If you were drowning in the sea, there in Dundee, by the docks, wouldn't you be... Wouldn't you be glad to see the swimming arms of Robert Annan coming at you? The kicking feet, bringing the gospel and salvation to you. Paul acknowledges that not all who hear will be saved, but all who will be saved will be saved by the church's proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. We know God does the saving. The Holy Spirit of God applies the finished work of Christ on the cross to the sinner and seals him for the day of salvation. But God has chosen his church to do the proclaiming. And so now the the focus is back on us, brothers and sisters. Will we be revived in our proclaiming? Lost people waiting. They do not have it in themselves to do anything. 
they're waiting for us. And Jesus has a word to his church at the end of Matthew chapter 28. The risen Christ has a word, a commission for his people. Now the eleven disciples, beginning in verse 16, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a lovely picture. The risen Christ, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, has given instructions to the 11 disciples to to come to the mountain. And they obeyed. They obeyed. They did what the Lord said. And when they got to him and they saw him, they worshipped. They worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so appropriate, isn't it? There are, I'm so grateful that there are so many wonderful books to read that help explain the scriptures to us and help draw out meaning and insight. I'm so grateful for so many teachers that do a good job of that. I'm so grateful for podcasts and YouTube videos that give good teaching and instruction in the scriptures and and men and women that I have known that have helped me to grow in my faith and understanding. But of all the things we could possibly know, if I could just remember to obey and to worship God, two little phrases could guide my entire Christian life could steer me to that distant shore where Christ awaits. Obey and worship. And one more thing. Be a gospel proclaimer. Be a gospel proclaimer. There are all kinds of messages and words and narratives. Don't you like that use of that word nowadays? The narrative people's narratives, political narratives, news narratives, all kinds of words out there, but there is one authorized word. All authority has been given to Jesus. And based on that authority, we have the authorized word to speak. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In effect... We don't need permission to speak it. We have been authorized and commissioned to speak it as ambassadors of the true Lord. We're to summons people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the righteousness that they need to come before holy God. Now, I know you'll be polite in your gospel proclaiming. I know you'll be wise in your approach to people in your gospel proclaiming. But you need to be absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are authorized by Christ to proclaim it. 
I kind of think Robert Annan understood that. I want to close with just a couple more words. I'll read this from his biography. Robert Annan began to employ his talent in the master's service on the very day of his conversion. I don't think he received much training before he went out to proclaim the gospel. Give me some tracts, he said, after telling me how he had found salvation through the blood of the Lamb. I wish to do something for Christ. That night he took his stand at the door of a hall in which a certain skeptic, now converted to Christ, was to lecture against the religion of Jesus and the revelation of God, that's his word, and distribute his tracts amongst those who entered, fearing not to testify to the truth. Day one. On the second night after his conversion, you know, because he had to go work as a stonemason during the day, On his second night after his conversion, Robert Annan was asked to speak at a meeting. He stood up at once and told the audience what the Lord had done for his soul. And henceforth, until the day of his death, a period of seven years, Robert Annan threw all of his heart and soul into the work of God. He had a passion for saving souls, and the Lord gave him great success. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to wait for the perfect witnessing opportunity before we speak. I know we want it. I know I do. And we dare not wait to become perfect witnesses before we proclaim it. Listen to one last description of Robert Annan. He had little knowledge and less tact to begin with. But he served a master who overlooks the faults of his servants and blesses their good intentions. His voice was harsh, but it was strong. His manner was rough, but it was manly. His manner was occasionally crude, but it was ever downright truth. His earnestness was vehement and terrible, but it was genuine and sincere. And his aim though sometimes misdirected, was always noble and Christ-like. For he aimed at the glory of God in the salvation of souls. Oh, that we might be just a little bit more like Christian heroes. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, revive us in our gospel proclaiming. Give us holy hearts filled with compassion for the lost. Give us desperate prayers for the salvation of the lost. Make us generous proclaimers of Christ's gospel to the lost. And all of this for your kingdom and your glory. Amen.